familiar sentences are familiar because of how profound they are. The prologue of the Gospel of John falls into that category. It has become one of the most recognizable pieces of prose, a recognizable piece of scripture. This morning, I want to once again place it before our eyes that our hearts may once again be set upon the Christ in this passage. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I want to continue the message I started last week, living a sustained life in Christ, enjoying the gift of Christ. And please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light into everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who has come after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. In 1894, William Stead published, If Christ Came to Chicago, a plea for the union of all who love and the service of all who suffer. I'm not sure why we don't title our books like that today. That's not even the longest or most convoluted title I've read. Few know of this work. Finding readable copies today is difficult. But at one time, it was the standard for journalistic research. Though he writes of Chicago, William Stead had actually come to Chicago from London, and he had traveled there to experience the World's Fair in 1893. But after some time, he found himself slightly appalled by the condition of the city. From one scene came the sight of the city shining and glamour, The World's Fair, indeed, had attracted many people, and so the city had put its best foot forward. But on the other side, in contrast to that picture, 
was a view of the city that was entrenched in poverty and corruption. Those conflicting views, one of grandeur and greatness, and the other of evil and exploitation, they caused Stead to rent the Central Music Hall and to hold a forum on the issue. He wanted to discuss those issues and come up with solutions. And he closed the forum by sharing his own story of coming to Chicago. And he says this, that he'd come to the city thinking that he'd left injustice behind in the old world. But what would Christ think of Chicago if he should come here today? Stead asked. If I understand why Christ came to live and die, it was that the common man might at least live a human life. But there are people in Chicago today who are not living a human life. That following year, he would publish If Christ Came to Chicago. And it would be based upon everything that he shared at that meeting. William Stead would perish on that Titanic, but not before having an impact on the social work of the day. I'm not sure that I would look to him as a model for faith and for practice. But he brings about a valuable perspective. Because he asks, what if Christ came? What if Christ came to whatever place? What if Christ were to come to Cowlitz County? What if Christ were to come to our church? What if Christ were to come to our home? Would he find a people living the human life? And not the human life as humans actually define it, but the human life as God defines it. Would he find a people living for his grace? Would he find a people living out his grace? And would he find a people living in his grace? I cannot help but wonder if the Lord is disappointed that he sacrificed so much so that people could be satisfied with so little. Something I've asked myself much this week. We are most satisfied when we are most satisfied in him. As the infinite, sufficient, eternal God, our Lord Jesus Christ is able to satisfy our needs more thoroughly, more effectively, and more perfectly than anything or anyone else. This is why our physical lives cannot be enjoyed or can only be enjoyed when we are enjoying Christ. As we have looked upon these final verses of John's prologue here, this has been my prayer that we would enjoy a sustained, satisfied life by enjoying the gift of Christ. John 1, 14 through 18, it's offered us three gifts that the Lord has given us. Three gifts that transform the enjoyment and excellence of life. But these gifts are only found in his son, Jesus Christ. And apart from him, they are unavailable and unattainable. I want you to remember from last week, the first gift, the gift of revelation, the gift of revelation. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation, that moment when God remained God, but manifested himself by becoming man in the form of Jesus Christ. 
By giving the gift of Christ, the Lord God has given the gift of revelation, permitting a new generation of believers to see him in a way that the previous generation had never seen him before. And so by giving Christ, God was giving himself. In verses in 14 and 15, we, we see Christ. We see him as eternally God. He is the God that has always existed and will always exist. We also see that he is infinitely God. A God who, for, from within his fullness, is the fullness of the deity of God. It will never cease. It is infinite. He is also sufficiently God. A God who is sufficient is a God who is sufficient for his creation and for you and I. And finally, we saw that he is permanently God. He has always been God. He will always be God. And no other will ever overtake his position. This is the Christ. The one whose coming we celebrated, rejoiced over and remembered just last week. Had his birth, he is the full revelation of God. And that revelation is what makes life possible. By his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our transgressions. By his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our temptations. And by his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our trials. This is what we see in the gift of revelation. I want you to now note, second, the gift of restoration. The gift of restoration. The next verse of our text reads, For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, though, came through Jesus Christ. Present in that verse are the elements of salvation. Without grace and truth, rescue and restoration are not possible. Without these elements of grace and truth, we cannot be rescued from sin and we cannot be restored to righteousness. And because they are embodied in Christ, they come at the birth of Christ. We could say then that the gift of restoration depends upon the gift of revelation. If the Lord had not revealed himself through Christ, he also would not have revealed his grace and truth. And thus restoration, at least as we know it today, would not be attainable for you and I. So without the gift of revelation, there is no gift of restoration. The greatest tragedy of mankind is to underestimate the value of this gift. Without this gift, men and women are left despondent in suffering and downcast in sorrow and despairing in sin. But to those who receive it, they can be joyful in their journey. They can be pleased by his presence and satisfied by their Savior. Our enjoyment of every other gift of God is dependent upon our enjoyment of this gift of God. Notice it's a two-part gift. It includes both grace and truth. We begin with the most understandable attribute, truth. If we were asked to explain what truth is, most of us would understand that it is the absence of falsehood. Truth is factual. It is accurate in all aspects. And so it's absence of all deceit and deception. 
Where there is truth, there is no treachery, and where there's truth, there's no trickery. In John 14, 6, Jesus declares that he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so within him, there is no deception, there's no distortion, there's no dishonesty. Therefore, all that he says, all that he does is accurate, and because it is accurate, it is authoritative. This attribute of truth is essential to our relationship with him. If he were not believable, we could never trust his intentions. We could never trust that he is working for his glory and for our good. We would always doubt, never knowing exactly what God had planned. But it's all revealed in his word, and so we can trust it. Which is actually the the second part of that is, because he is truth and because he is the word, as verse 1 says, we can also trust the word. We can trust the scriptures. Because they were inspired by the very one who is truth himself. Perhaps most pertinent is that Jesus, if he were not truth, we could not trust our salvation. Proverbs sixteen six. it was in your bulletin, and it captures this by saying, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Our sin is atoned for on that cross by loving kindness and truth. The King David understood this when he penned Psalm 25 and Psalm 26. And he points to this truth as a means to his own salvation and his own preservation. (laughs) Writing things like, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Let integrity and uprightness, those are truths, preserve me, for I wait for you. Psalm 26.1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in truth, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. Truth and salvation go together because truth is conveyed at the gospel. We see that again in John 14, 6. I am the way, the gospel, the truth, and the life. To undermine God and his gospel, all we need to do is undermine truth. One of my favorite writings is C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. It's a series of letters written by the senior devil, Screwtape, as he gives instructions to his junior associate. This is a work of fiction. I hope you would know. Because we know that nobody has written the devil. I enjoy that writing, though. Because although it was written decades ago, it, it accurately portrays our society of today. It captures an idea that I've often said from here. It's language, not necessarily truth, that controls our culture. <coughs> and so in one particular letter, letter, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, that's the junior associate, and he says this, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? Meaning, is he not being naive in how he's trying to deceive this person? It sounds if you suppose that argument was a way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. The enemy in this case would be God. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. 
At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing, and they were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning, meaning truth impacts, truth changes people. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. That is to say, language, not truth is the best way to keep somebody from church. He's saying the best weapon against the gospel is not truth, but language. It doesn't matter if that language is true or not. Truth always divides. It divides those who will believe it from those who will not believe it. Truth is the essential gift of restoration. Because without the truth of Christ, there is no transformation into Christ-likeness. But that's not the only element we see here. It comes also with grace. In verse 17, John points us to the law given through Moses. But he contrasts that law with the grace and truth from the Lord Jesus Christ. The law summarized by those Ten Commandments was sufficient enough to impart the Lord's truth. But Jesus does something that the law cannot do. He offered grace, or rather, he offered a sufficient grace. While the law offers condemnation, Christ offers clemency. As the Messiah, Jesus gives grace, that unmerited favor, that unearned forgiveness, that undeniable forbearance. Look at the text. Most of your Bibles will say something like grace upon grace. As in bountiful grace, grace that is overflowing, that is exceeding. From Christ comes an endless stockpile of grace. That's a true statement. We know it's a true statement because we just talked about he is infinitely God. And so he has an infinite supply of grace to give. We actually sing about it, this infinite sufficient grace. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. And it should be amazing to us, the realization that because his grace is infinite, his grace is sufficient. And because it is sufficient, it is able to overcome all that we have going on in our lives. Paul reminds the Romans, though, that this endless grace from God does not give us a reason for endless sin against God. We do not take advantage of God's grace by sinning more so that grace can be given. Instead, we're joyful to know that when we have fallen short, the grace of God prevails. This is true that through Christ, the Christ follower will find an endless supply of grace. There is grace sufficient enough to meet our needs. But I would tell you that that's not an accurate translation of that verse. That's not actually what we get out of that verse. We see that elsewhere in scripture, that his grace is sufficient. But this verse would be better translated, 
grace instead of grace. From his, for from his fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. That's a confusing statement. What does that mean that we would receive grace instead of grace? The idea is that the Lord has always been gracious. Even in the law, the Lord's grace is evident. We see it evident through the sacrifice and grace that is given to those who still believe in the word of God and trust that word. That's the first grace. But that second grace is the grace given by Christ. It is a fuller expression of God's grace. So that is to say that we receive grace from Christ rather than grace from the law. Grace from Christ instead of grace from the law. That's the significance there. Though grace indeed did look different, we know that the Lord still allowed the people of the Old Testament to experience his grace. It was just in a different way than we do in Christ. That's why John then makes that comparison in verse 17. That comparison between the law of Moses and the grace and truth of Christ. What we see is that the Lord provides grace as it is needed in that moment. One way for those in the Old Testament, a different way for us. He gives grace according to the needs of a person. That's most evident for us in the forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't stop there. It's also for the sanctification from sin. He gives grace where we need it, when we need it, so that we may be transformed into the image of his son. It was William Barclay who described it well when he said, we need one grace in the days of prosperity and another in the days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another when the shadow of age begin to lengthen. The church needs one grace in the days of persecution and another when the days of acceptance have come. We need one grace when we feel that we are on top of the things and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. Thank the Lord that we have a God who is sufficient in his grace and his grace is infinite. We see God's grace expressed in compassion. We see God's grace expressed in correction. But most importantly, we see God's grace expressed in Christ. Like truth, the chief way to undermine the God and his gospel then is to undermine the grace of God in Christ, which is exactly what we do every time we think our good works are a means to earn his grace, whether from God or people, I guess. We undermine his grace and his gospel. Our good works can never accomplish what his good grace will accomplish. Notice what the text says. He is full of grace and truth, verse 14, and then verse 16, from his fullness. So he's full of grace and truth, and from his fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. He is full of grace and truth. And because of that, believers receive their share of grace and truth. From his infinite worth comes an infinite supply of both. How can that be? How is Christ able to impart God's grace and God's truth? Because he's eternally, infinitely, sufficiently, permanently 
God. Within Christ is the fullness of God. We read it this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, we see that he is fully God. Colossians 1.19, which we studied about a year ago. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. Translation on the screen reads, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of grace and truth are in Christ because the fullness of God is within Christ. And so as long as we receive the benefits of God's fullness, the benefits of grace and truth, we may not actually care about the fullness of God. We may not even think about it. But it says the fullness of God dwells in Christ. That's wonderful to know, but really what what impact does that have to us? Why do we care that the fullness of God dwells in Christ? Do you know what Christians are supposed to do with the fullness of God? They're supposed to pursue it. If we call ourselves Christians, the objective of our lives is to pursue the fullness of God. Paul prays this in Ephesians chapter 3, saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And he actually adds a lot more. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We talk about Christ having the fullness of God, and here Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians and all believers would also have the fullness of God. Not that we would be God, but we would have the fullness of God. The goal of the Christian life is that we both apprehend and comprehend the fullness of God. Paul defines that as a Christian objective in Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm not going to go there, but if you want to go to Ephesians chapter 4, he defines that as the objective for the church as well. That as a church, we function in order to know the fullness and impart the fullness of God. So how do we do that? By what I just said, by comprehending and apprehending the fullness of truth and grace in Christ. And you have to have both. You can't have just grace, you cannot have just truth. Without truth, we have no knowledge of sin. And without grace, we have no forgiveness of sin. To have forgiveness of sin without knowledge of sin would diminish the value and the wonder of of that grace. It means that although a person may be forgiven, they have no knowledge or understanding of what they're forgiven from or why they even needed forgiveness in the first place. And so the grace of God becomes meaningless. On the other side, to have knowledge of sin without the forgiveness of sin, so to have truth without grace, is going to leave a person in despair. That person will know they are a sinner, but they would have no hope of deliverance from that sin. So you must have both, and this is the goal of the Christian life. To attain the fullness of God is is critical, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. That is to say that the fullness of God is not just a means to be transferred from hell to heaven, but it's a means to be transformed from the image of a human into the image of Christ. 
the fullness of grace and truth in Christ is the Lord's method for transforming us from sinner to saint. Consider the role of grace and truth in our transformation. By truth, the Lord reveals who we are. And just as an example, it is well said that I read many books, but this book reads me. When I pick up the Bible, it does not make light of who I am. It is the source of truth. And by reading this truth, I find out exactly who I am. Just look at the study of Colossians in this past year. And chapter 3 alone reveals that I am impure and covetous, an idol worshiper. I'm evil and angry and wrathful, a liar. The list goes on and on. But with this truth, the Lord then uses his spirit, the spirit of truth, as Jesus calls him, to convict me of those areas that do not conform to his image. And then that same spirit convinces me to change, to set aside those areas and replace them with something greater. So with the word of truth, the Lord tells me exactly who I am. But it is his grace that compels him to tell the truth about who I am. By the fullness of his grace, the Lord reveals those less than perfect areas. We may not think so because it is hard to confront the reality of our hearts. It is difficult to acknowledge where we fall short. And yet, the fact that the Lord does reveal it is part of his grace. Sometimes the grace is revealed delicately through the correction of a fellow believer. Sometimes it's revealed more harshly, though, through discipline. But don't misunderstand, both of those are expressions of God's grace. It would be ungracious for him to allow us to continue in sin. Think about it this way. When we visit the doctor, we expect the doctor to give answers that are accurate, that are truthful. We want him to be truthful in the diagnosis and tell us what he knows going on and what he doesn't know. If he's not truthful, we wouldn't have the right treatment for the ailment. At the same time, we expect the doctor to be gracious by telling us exactly what is taking place. If too much salt is creating a blockage in our heart, it is more gracious for him to tell us to cut back on that than to allow us to shorten our life by continuing in it. In the same way, if we have months to live, it's more gracious for him to tell us and share those details. Again, they're difficult to hear. They're difficult to bear. But it's exactly what we need at that moment. When my mom was diagnosed with her cancer, one of my biggest frustrations is I couldn't get any doctor to give me a straight answer. I got it. They, they didn't have complete knowledge. But just give me an estimate of what's going on. How serious is it? And I get it. Even that at that time was inexact. And probably fearful of opening themselves up to lawsuits. I get that too. But I needed something direct and something concrete for them to show me and tell me just how serious that illness was. Is treatment likely to help or not? Should I be preparing myself for the inevitable? And nobody would answer those. And what ended up happening is I squandered several months of time because the doctors were not gracious enough to be honest. This is the same with our God. The fullness of grace and truth 
It is sufficient for both salvation and sanctification, and that comes through the fullness of God in Christ. So the Christian objective is to pursue fullness of Christ, not just so that we know what our sin is, but so that we can overcome it. To quote Clovis Chappelle, in his, in Christ's presence, we become conscious of our moral failure. But Jesus not only shows us who we are, he shows us also what we may become. This is a gift of restoration. That by the fullness of grace and truth, God rescues us from sin and restores us to righteousness. In light of this being Communion Sunday, the time when we celebrate and remember the service and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's prudent to end the message there, reflecting on the grace and truth of Christ as it was displayed on the cross. I hate to take this into a third week, but I think it's a good point to dwell upon. Dr. Francis Schaeffer tells the story of a prominent American government official who had been asked to speak as a part of a project to teach student leaders in Washington. And his topic that he was chosen to speak for was restoring values in our culture. When he finished, there was a moment of silence, and then one student finally rose up, a man from Harvard University, and he asked, Sir, upon what base do you build your values? One man writes, it was a brilliant question, but a tragic moment for the speaker, because he simply looked down and replied, I don't know. Here was a man who was calling upon the youth of America to return to a system of values, but he was offering them nothing to build it upon. And so Dr. Schaefer remarks, he was a man trying to tell his hearers not to steal the company funds and run off to Morocco and yet giving no reason why they shouldn't. If we ask the question upon what base do we build our values, I hope the obvious answer is Christ. The answer is Christ because Within him combines the combination of grace and truth. And it's a perfect blend of character. Where grace is absent, godlessness will prevail. And where there is no truth, there are no standards. What's incredible is that grace and truth are fully present in Christ. They are perfectly and sufficiently present within the character of Christ. And thus, they are his to freely give. From him comes grace and truth, necessary for each of us, for our church, for our culture. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is a pinnacle description of Jesus. His grace is greater than our goodness. His truth is superior to our thoughts. His grace overcomes conflict and contention, and his truth overcomes our trials and tribulations. To enjoy life, we must enjoy Christ. On July 8, 1723, Edwards wrote resolution number 53 of his 70 resolutions, and it reads this. 
resolved to improve every opportunity when I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. There's a saying that says it's not what you know, but who you know. I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know this. We know nothing if we don't know Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed, you've given us this gift of revelation. You've revealed yourself fully in Christ because within him dwells your fullness. And from that, Lord, we see this grace and truth You've imparted it into our lives and and given it to us through your son, Christ, through his birth, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection, Lord. Father, we we need both in our lives so that we may come to you. And Father, I, I pray that indeed we would pursue the fullness of that. We would pursue your fullness, Lord. Not so much because of what we want to be, but because we want to enjoy you and because we enjoy you. It transforms, indeed, who we want to be then. And so, Father, I I thank you for your gifts that you've imparted to us, Lord. And, Father, I pray that we wouldn't take them for granted. May we not be content with so little when you have sacrificed so much. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.